Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm really happy because we are not in the studio today. Where are we, Rob? We're in the sun-drenched, sun-filled gallery of the Royal Academy. Ooh, very posh. Very posh. How come we ended up here, Rob? (laughs) Because you and I bonded in our beginning of our friendship over a particular artist's work. Yes. And we are so excited to be able to speak with her today. Yes. She currently has an incredible solo exhibition in the Royal Academy of the Arts, which is in central London. And I recommend everybody to come and see this show. It's on for a a bit longer and it's really incredible. What's it called, Rob? It's called Cul-de-Sac. Heaven. And we're here today at the Cul-de-Sac show with the most incredible artist. Please, can we welcome to Talk Art, Philida Barlow. <laughs> How are you, Philida? Very well. And it's lovely to be here with you. Really oh, is. It's Thank such you. an honour to have you on. Do you know how we bonded over your work? Has Rob told you the story before? No, no. So, Rob? So, Russell and I were collecting art and we were always looking for, like, new things to to collect, but also just to learn. And we heard about your show at the Russian Club, Mm. which was with Jesse Flood Paddock. And it was a duo show. And we also liked Jesse's work. Mm. And then um, Joe Scotland started telling us about you and about the history of your work. Joe Scotland is a director of the Studio Voltaire Mm. Gallery. Yeah, and Mm. also Sarah McCrory was there back then, I think. And they were really buzzed up about Mm. your work and showing your work work and then they offered you an exhibition and Mm. I remember going before you had your exhibition and they had some little sculptures of yours in the office Mm. and I sent pictures to Russell and was like this artist is like our new favorite artist like I'm so excited (laughs) and I ended up collecting one of those works from them as it was like a fundraising thing I think you gave some sculptures to them Mm. and then um then we found out the Russian club had like an addition by you mm. where each of the concrete sculptures was like a hundred pounds or something mm. so Russell and I ran down there and we ended up buying about half the addition between <laughs> us because we, we literally I've spent about, about four and I bought them as oh gifts for people and yeah. exactly and we bought them for gifts for people and we decided that we were going to try and split all 30 of, of the addition yeah. to all our friends yeah. and we ended up like selling the addition out to everyone oh, that we knew so it was hilarious so we know where they all are okay. um, so one day they can come back but anyway right. we like properly bonded over you and then we got really obsessed with your drawings 
and mm. even your show you did in Swiss Cottage many mm. many years ago. Oh. Um, Russell bought a drawing from that show, um, but it was like later. I bought a drawing it? from the Swiss Cottage Library. You had a drawing oh, in that show, yeah, not at God. the time. Later mm. on, I got oh, that really? from Carsten Schubert. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. 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 And I was living yeah. in Swiss Cottage at the time, and there were all oh. these funny. And I got the drawings. Stories. You donated drawings to Studio Voltaire, the House yeah. of Voltaire show. So I got a couple of drawings from there. Oh. So it was really like as collected. Oh, we were like as collectors. We we came into your work. We learned so much about you because of the word scrim and mm. like cement and all these mm. unusual like mm. ingredients that go into your work <laughs> yeah. and it was so exciting yeah the narrative of your work with these mm. words yeah, yeah. Mm. so anyway we're here today so it's yes, a complete no, it's like no. a 360 for us to be Tremendous. doing this podcast and be back with you so <laughs> we've entered the first room which is called the gabriella Jungles winkler gallery wing right is that right <laughs> yeah. guess so so and we've um we're in your show the cul-de-sacs the first mm. thing we see is uh concrete plinths that have these painted flags that's made out of uh, like canvas is it this yes is... cotton duck canvas wow and then they are laid unrolled the canvas is unrolled on the studio floor and we paint them with brooms so oh, they right. big tubs of paint that i just then use brooms to paint the canvas so the canvas is absolutely drenched with this color Wow. And then, then they take about a week to dry. And um, How do you dry them, hanging up? Or? Yes, over a, a sort of build, a special kind of trestle in the studio to dry them. And it's, this all happened in winter, so I was quite worried that they were going to start to get mould on them, which has happened with this it, technique. This process before, hasn't Yes, it? yeah. It takes so long for them to dry that they start to gather all kinds of... Bacteria. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and these <laughs> works are huge. I yeah. mean, so huge. How tall are they? Do you know? The, the tallest one is five and a half metres down to um, 3.5 metres. Amazing. Yeah. So but what, what is so um, bizarre about this whole relationship with materials and getting materials to perform, in a way, is that... It seems quite simple, just the idea of draping canvas like that. But the weight of the canvas is absolutely phenomenal. And it takes these, each of these um, concrete cement bases is about three, three, uh, 25, 25, about 50 kilograms or more. 75 kilograms so these in order to hang the canvas you need this enormous weight and i find these things absolutely fascinating so is this a trial I know and it's error very, yeah absolutely trial and error. so we we had them draped in the studio and they kept on falling over oh, wow. until until we could get the weight right and then we had to cast you know, however many it was of these. Did you make these all at the same sort of time? Yes. So how yes. big is your studio? It's, it's the one I've got at the moment that's just coming to an end in July is 11,000 square foot. Whoa. But I can't afford it. It's just bankrupting me. Is it's, it really? This is a real sign of London at the moment yes. and artists trying to find spaces. But I found a new one uh, new studio in South London so okay yeah are you excited about that yes very actually I think it will be it's much cheaper and all sorts of things how long have you been at this studio that's uh, going to an end? since 2014 yeah wow so yeah. you've made your most like 
iconic works in there so far, right? Like yeah, I've done a lot period, of work, yeah. yes, in there, yeah. But I'm, I'm glad to be leaving it. You are? Because, yes, it's just too... Yeah, sometimes it's good to change, isn't it? Energy. And to have a new start and somewhere. The, the, because it's not with a studio provider, the business rates, I mean, it just... The amount each month I have to find. Yeah, it goes up and up and up. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. It's really... do you th- does that ever affect the work in some ways for you? No, I think it's... Because for years I just had a tiny studio. Mm. And I think it's still quite new. It's eight years that I've had big studios to make work in so it's it's like a sort of incentive you know mm-hmm. i always feel that things are going to end mm-hmm. <laughs> tomorrow you know will be um back to you know a domestic studio mm-hmm. and that was that you know? yeah, so yeah. That, that period I, was over but what, period, what's the square footage of your new space um it's five thousand six thousand square okay, foot it's half, half i mean that yes it is compared yeah. with what yeah. yeah. So I'm um, going back to this particular work. Mm. What's the title of this one? Sorry. It's got some. Uh, Untitled Burrow. Is it that one? Three? Uh, no, those are the wall pieces. Lintel Shadow. Canvas Racks. <laughs> got it. Canvas Racks. Really canvas racks. imaginative title. I hope so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at this work, mm. this really brings up this idea that I've always thought about with, with your um, body of work is this idea of the plinth somehow. Mm. And I know these aren't necessarily meant to be plinths, but they, they could be, you know, they visually look like the mm. shape of a, a plinth you might sometimes see a sculpture on. Mm. And mm. I've always felt with your work, it's almost like, I don't know if it's anti the plinth, but mm. somehow it's like breaking free of that tradition. Mm. And Conformity, yeah. It's quite a prison, I think, for mm. some sculptors, this idea of having to make a sculpture and then put it on a plinth mm. and how you make that look interesting. Mm. And obviously some mm. people have made it part of their work, that investigation of like how to yes. make the plinth interesting or something. Yeah. But it can just be such a bore, the plinth. And mm. I love that freedom in your work, the way you've kind of got away mm. from that. How do you, how do you feel about the, the plinth? <laughs> I do, well, with the smaller works, I make these bespoke plinths that are actually all part of the work and are often a result of how the small works get stacked up in the studio. So it might be on a stack of boxes or a shelf or I find um, a very high table. You know, I I like viewing work at eye level and slightly above, so the plinths are often quite high, but they're an integral part of the small work. Yeah, exactly. And then for me, making the work in the studio is very sort of private and intimate, and I never think about the audience, you know, they just don't exist at all. And then the work gets ready to be brought to the venue, and it's a shock, because it's as if I've who made this stuff, for God's sake? You know? <laughs> Did you go into a sort of trance-like state when you make the work? I, I'm just so busy with it. Yeah. And it's like a relationship. It's like the worst relationship and the best relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a love affair. And then that comes to an end and it's moved to a space like this. Mm. And it's like, my God, you know, who, who the hell made that stuff? You yeah, know? Yeah. Do you have and it in your mind's eye what the work will look like at the end? I mean, yes. something like this, I guess... And we you try process, out, and when I say we, myself, my studio manager, Adam, yeah. and a, a couple of assistants will try this work out. Right, right, and right. Then, but I never, very rarely see the whole work 
visually in your mind in, uh, up and finished in the studio oh, it's right. only when we get to the venues is the, the opportunity to actually see it finished so it's a shock and it's relearning what it is so then it's the relationship starts to develop it's the work and the space yes. so there are then two protagonists yes and then i finish with that and that's quite a tense experience installing wow. but a, a thrilling experience because it's reacquainting myself with the work and then the third protagonist of course is the audience yeah and so for me the plinth is transformed into an actual space which in some ways i see as a sort of stage space and it'd be interesting yes, to it was, get your it's views. Very theatrical. It's very yeah. theatrical. Like, I want, like, I'm looking at this one above us now. Mm. I want to climb on the top and give a speech. Yes. It's like these things, <laughs> you, they're, they're, it's kind of frustratingly interactive. It's like I without want to be, the, without yes, being interactive, yeah, you can't climb really over it. That's a really good way of putting you want, it. Yeah. They're like hmm. playgrounds, like adult playgrounds yes. in some ways. Yeah. They seem too dangerous for kids to go on, but as an adult you <laughs> could take the risk, but you're not allowed. It's, it's amazing. But I love that idea that something's making you want to, yeah, I want to run amongst do them something, and, yeah. but you can't, so your imagination has to exactly. then think, well, what is it? Like up there. Up what there. is it like up there looking yeah. down at us or laying there yeah. in the sunshine, this, this platform above us? And yes. it's so high up, this one as well. It's like almost touching the ceiling. Yes, You've kind of like gone as far as you can into the space. Exactly. And I always yeah. like that kind of, that sense of, it, I know this might sound a bit dramatic on my part, but like impending doom almost, because that's such a huge block of concrete up there. Mm. And at any minute it might sort of fall down. There's some mm. kind of precarious, I don't know. And I think these are, I think that's really interesting what you said about doom, because I'm quite interesting inter i'm not interested but i'm quite you are <laughs> i'm quite interested in these double in these opposites that something can be doom laden but also maybe thrilling or have other qualities as well so it's playing with two different sort of emotions Oceans, in yeah. a way and i i think that's i think to me, the use of height and the use of precariousness is a kind of metaphor right, right. of, you know, how we all live, you know, on, yes. on our nerves, etc., or, yeah. or even in relationship to the world around. And I remember your incredible uh, installation you did a few years ago at the Tate Britain. Oh, yes. Which mm. was in the Devine Galleries. Mm. And in my opinion, it's one of the greatest Devine Gallery commissions because mm. you took on that space mm. and made me look at pieces of that building even not not mm. even just your own work but you kind of transformed that building I'd never even seen corners of that building that I, I discovered through your work oh great and yeah. when you walked through that it was mm. this huge kind of hallway of mm -hmm. you know like crazy kind of sculpture um I don't know what you call it like a how it was, like a, it was like a uh, like a climbing frame. Like a climbing like frame, a huge, almost. Yeah, exactly. Like this huge playground, frame, yeah. but yeah. like closed yeah. off. And it was one of the most mm. powerful experiences I've ever had in that space. Mm. And how did that one come about? Well, oddly enough, it began with something that was, in a way, the complete opposite to what I do. I think one of the best installations I've seen there was Martin Creed's Runners. Loved yes, that. And, yes. and I just think that use where the space was vacated, mm -hmm. apart from this pounding noise that was like a heartbeat, and there was a great sense of threat about that. There was doom and, about that, yeah, because you're like, why are people running? If you're in a public arena and people yes. start running, then yeah. there's obviously like, what are they running from? And the current climate, terrorism, they, yeah, that's exactly. the first thing that runs we into your mind. We met the other week and we spoke about that. Mm. And I said, when I saw it, I was like, who are these people? What are they? What are they? I didn't realise. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. fascinating. But the, so I 
began to think about that space. And then I went and sat outside the Tate and looked at the river outside. And it was very formal. The river runs like the top of a T, and the, the Tate Britain is like the bottom of the T. It's like a T shape. In, oh, true, I know yes. that sounds really no, bad. No, no. But these barges going down with just these big crates. And I thought that's the emptiness, and then maybe nothing should touch the ground in there. So I started to think about just hanging things just above head level and at body level throughout the Davine, apart from one collapsed piece in it. And so it was like a combination of Martin Creed's work opening up a way of thinking about that space yeah. and sitting and just looking at the river passing by in a way triggered what I wanted to do with that space, to create this sense of suspense, both literally suspending things and as if everything was frozen in a particular moment wow. there. And I, I suppose that's what I love about sculpture. It is dumb and silent and it doesn't get up and walk around. You have to do the walking around. Yeah. You know? And uh, its passivity makes us active, you know. And I, I think that's quite counter to what we experience on a daily basis, yes. which is that everything is flickering and moving, mm. screens are flickering and moving. But, but sculpture is pointlessly still, silent, dumb, useless. You know? yeah, and to me, that's its, that's its absolute greatness. You know, that, you know, as an artist, I can actually have a position or permission to make something that is completely counter to the world we're in, in terms of its physicality, mm -hmm. but can in a way be an expression of the world we're right. in. So and I, I enjoy that yeah. paradox in a way. Well, you know? I, think, I think your work stops you taking for granted what you assume you're gonna see in a mm. gallery and mm. what you assume a space is. Like you would walk into it and you take for granted the wall space and the height, but your work mm. challenges that so much that what Rob was saying when you you suddenly notice areas of the building you're in because of your work. It, it sort of thrusts you and makes mm. you mm. take stuff in. Is, 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 that a, is that what an actor experiences? I'm always in because I'm fascinated by the, the behind-the-scenes things of... Well, you want, yeah, you want people to see, expose people to different stories, I guess, to mm. di different ways of life, to different ways of thinking, but mm. you also want to hold their hand and let them feel like they are being represented or they recognise mm. that emotion. Mm. And your work, you, you recognise, it just challenges what it is to be in an art gallery, what it is to be in a space right, and, and yeah. how, how mm. we've sort of been programmed to exist within a space, mm. I guess. And mm. I, guess, I guess that is, mm. stage acting, I guess, especially does that. When, mm. you, when, you, when the screen goes up and you see the set, mm. it's like, and you see something really challenging, you're like, wow, this is really mm. affecting the environment, the arena. Yes. You, you yeah. are in the, it feels like you're coming to the arena with your mm. work. Mm. Definitely. You know, I, I heard an interview with the musician Tori Amos the other day. Oh, right. And yeah. I think it might have been a really old one. I'm not sure now. Mm. We don't know what era it was. But she was talking about 
when her career became really successful mm. and she was writing all these very personal songs about rape and about relationships mm. and, you know, very intense things. At the time, no one was talking about it. It's way before the Me Too movement. It was mm. like 91 mm. or something. Yeah. And um, she said she quickly realised that going on stage and singing those songs was no longer just about her experience or her. It was about all the people in the audience and it was mm. all their stories mm. and mm. all their, oh, their own, you know, personal traumas yes. or whatever. And she quickly realised the responsibility of that somehow to let them experience their own and, and go mm. through their own stories and work it all out for themselves. Their projection. And that's yeah. what yeah. I also yes. think actors yes. can do. Facilities you know, because I watched someone on the tube this morning when I came here watching mm. a TV show um, on his iPhone because mm. the world's just changed so much now where you can watch TV yes. on the train. <laughs> yeah. um, and he was so engrossed and you could see this passion and this kind of like, mm. he was so excited by it. And I love that idea mm. that you can somehow work out your own experiences and troubles, but you work it out through different mediums yes, of art exactly. or film yes. or music yeah. or... Yeah. Was he attractive, Rob? Powerful. No, he wasn't yes, attractive. Yes, right, I'm sure he is. <laughs> like, I was really watching this man watching Russell, TV. <laughs> that's not fair. Let's move on. So these wall works here, there are two sculptures um, which are very kind of bulbous, lumpy, kind of strange, unusual, mm. almost brain-like. Scrim. Scrim. Is there scrim in there? There is scrim in we there. We love scrim. Yes. Did you make the word scrim up? Or is scrim... No, it's as old as the hills. I mean, Don, Donatello used scrim. <laughs> really? That's so cool. And if it was very and, unique um, yeah. to you, though, scrim. Really? Yeah, oh, for no, us I it mean, does. It's a hugely traditional material that you use to give support to liquid materials like plaster and cement. So you dip the scrim into those what materials. What exactly is scrim? It's a jute, it's a hessian woven, um, I, if it's I had a cross still, hatching. I know exactly it's cross what it, hatching. Scrim. Like, like, like plaster of Paris that you put it, over a broken Exactly, arm. but okay. this is a very broad weave scrim, okay. so it's quite... Which you got, often see in your work, actually, but I never knew that was the actual scrim. Now we yes. know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, so, it's just there with yeah, that bit yeah, of pink yeah. on it. Yeah. Wow. So these and two the, works have got rid of the plinth completely and they're yeah. now wall-based. Yes, which is a kind of plinth. I mean, it's quite, yeah. it's quite... I think what I was trying to say about the stage, in, in a way, the stage becomes the plinth, right. you know. So in, to me, these are... In a way, this whole space is a kind of all-embracing plinth, Amazing. you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's, and here I think the wall is very much the the plinth that articulates the space around these right. objects. Right, yeah. right, right. Mm, if that and makes the, these works in particular, they're much smaller in scale. Mm. So these, I always sort of almost imagine you sort of making these somehow, like with oh, your yeah. hands, like yeah, they're yeah, very direct, yes. aren't they? These, the smaller works are, in a way, the engine of all the works, you know, that the, the bigger works come out of where I make the smaller works right. because I can still make them all myself, but the bigger works, I do need a team of people to do them, I can't do them yeah. myself. Yeah. So these are very, very close to me physically. I sometimes feel that I'm making them almost in a state of blindness. They're not, they're not necessarily about a visual image that's in my head. They're about a process of actions, of burrowing, of pulling, of removing, you know, and eventually an object emerges from that. Oh, I love that. Hmm. How do you know when it's done? How do you know when it's... Very good question. I don't. So would you look at that now and think, still could do a bit more on that? I, yes. I think, yes, there's a restlessness. And that's another thing I love about sculpture, is I think it's... 
in the way I work, it's purposefully courting a kind of unsettledness. It's battling with the way materials want to settle. They want to set or they want to be fixed in some way. And I'm quite interested in their restlessness and the fact that maybe they fall over, they burst, they don't stick, they're difficult to fix, and exploring those qualities. And not just as a visual experience, but as a very tactile, sentient experience. Wow. You know? And I love that idea of making, and you're not really sure what it is you're about to make. Very much. With That's why, for me, the smaller ones are so important. Yeah, you know? but I think that's I mean, such an important thing to tell people now, because... Mm. The younger artists that I meet these days, they're often so um, paralysed by the idea that you have to have great thought and great um, intellectual kind of uh, ideas. Apparatus. Yes, yeah, yeah. before you've made the work. And mm. the work has to somehow embody all of the, that, that weight of intelligence or something. Mm. Where actually I think people are forgetting just to make mm. and actually put your hands on clay or put your hand on the paint or you mm. know, the paintbrush or whatever and just try and make and then discover through that process. Yeah, I think it's it's very difficult and I think artists who work in this exploratory way where they're not sure where the end is or the finish is are also quite vulnerable actually because I think these works are kind of extensions of their own bodies and their own mental apparatus and for me they don't have an idea they're idealless so they can seem stupid right, know, right, right. and dumb right. and I think Critically, they then become very difficult to write about. And it's how maybe artists who are working in that way can stand up and articulate something about that process that's quite important. Talking about responsibility, you know, of Tori Amos, I thought that was brilliant what you said, mm. you know, that maybe there is, you know, for me, there is an act of communication that is verbal that isn't the work, but can, it, can give some insight into what the sensual experience of making is, and that it isn't a verbal experience. It's some other kind of experience. And I think that's, for me, very important. Great. And I remember when we first discovered your work, it was this kind of scale of work that we, yes. that we first yeah. saw. Mm. And I remember having this very almost involuntary connection to it mm. that was very much about almost like the soul somehow. Mm. And I could feel like not just your soul, but like my own somehow in these works. Mm. An and I found them so incredibly um, mm. inspiring, I think, because of that experience and it was interesting because at the time I'd not, I'd not seen work like this mm. that much in you know in younger artists or contemporary art in London and I mean there were references that you, I didn't initially think of things like Franz West or different yes, people yeah. but equally it was different and it was very mm. other to me mm. and it wasn't like even mm. referencing those people it, it felt new and and exciting but I, it's quite interesting how you weren't um necessarily embraced by the commercial art world until much later mm. and I was wondering um whether you think that is just about timing or whether it has something to do with like being a woman, a woman or, yeah. or, or, what, or, or what you think that, that is? I, I mean, I think what's fantastic due to people like you and is that we're in actually, despite everything, there's a lot to talk about art now, but there's an incredible openness about art now. You know, and people 
artists themselves, you know, that kind of modernist rigor, you know, it's imploded. We've had enough of it, you know. We've had enough of having, you know, being told what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, you know, which I think that modernist trajectory was something that I experienced as a young artist, you know. And it was strange to be always in the wrong, you know. Right. And whether that was a female thing or whether it was that my interests were just diversifying away from that very strict lineage where you go from Picasso to conceptual art in a sort of straight line. Yes, you know? yes. And nobody thinks like that now. It's crazy to think about now. You know, you're thinking of artists from Korea, China, India, all over the place. So it's that ridiculous, rigorous kind of art, art history. Art history. <laughs> <laughs> that art history has, you know, it's withered on the vine. And therefore, I think possibly my trajectory didn't fit into that right. particular white male his, his history. Right. And so when things did start to open up through people like yourself and other younger galleries, you know, I, I think I had a, you know, a new audience in a way, and which was in my favour. <laughs> we, we, we met Janet Street Porter um, last night and we were talking about this idea about how the, the um, kind of rules have been broken down and that now yes. art can be anything. Mm. And that it doesn't, you know, if you're making a pot, for example, that can be just as valued and revered as, you know, a fine artwork or whatever, mm. and that craft is somehow... Mm you know, mm. th th there is an art in Seems craft or something. Mm. And I wonder mm. if timing-wise, because of, like, the internet and all of that development and we were all starting to communicate in such a different way, to have work like yours, which is so physical and so kind of... You can feel you in this work somehow. It's quite performative, your work. Yeah. Well, yes, again, I think, yeah. But I think... I think it is a very exciting time. I mean, I... The, the performance of making does... Um, interests me. Have you ever Not, filmed yourself making it? Uh, no, but they've got a film here. Of, oh, really? Yes, yeah. No, it's absolutely excruciating. I wish I'd said, could they please do cosmetic surgery? Because there seems to be a huge emphasis on my triple chins. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got a glorious chin standing next to you. <laughs> but I'd love to show you the yes, other small going. works yes. in yeah, there. Yeah, so cool. there's a lot of colour, I mean, the colour features in your work and I would say that pink is one of your favourite colours. Yes, it's because I think it's an in-between colour. It's not... Red. It's not red and it's not whatever, you know, it's the sort of slightly... Yeah. And it's a wonderful colour in the urban environment. If you look at the way they mark pavements to be repaired, they're often sprayed. Oh, with a fluoro pink, aren't yes, they? Yes, yeah. you're right. And the end of scaffolding poles can be painted pink so you don't walk into them. And so these that's sort the of about your work is that you notice things exactly. like that because of you. That's what we're saying. Like you, you notice on the street. We walk along, go, it looks like Phil Lebarlo. So one, of, one of the bricks that we got from the Russian club, Russell gave me for my birthday and then I gave him one. So we both, it was kind of a ridiculous <laughs> thing. So we we gave one to each other. But the one that he gave me has a pink cross on it. Yes. And it's very small. And then I said to him after we, he gave me that, I was like, every time I walk on the street now, I keep seeing like a yellow mark or a pink mark. <laughs> right, and yeah, it yeah, just yeah. reminds me of Philida. Yeah. And it is, it is, that's what 
what great artists do. I think you reflect mm-hmm. the world around you. Yeah. And often and it can be world. a social thing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I love the fact that you're actually sort of taking from the everyday mm-hmm. and that it somehow transforms our everyday experience. Yeah, it kind of totally. makes my walk to work or whatever mm-hmm. more enjoyable somehow. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing. But you're very generous, both of you, and that's, that's amazing to experience as an artist, your generosity. It's just oh. fantastic. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com But I think the less colour in this show is very much a result of the Venice experience. Mm. Because in, in Venice, with the British Pavilion, I crammed it to the gills. So, in a way, if I'm interested in a relationship between space and object, it's also a kind of feud. Does the space devour the object or the object devour the space? And I really wanted to go for that in Venice in a way, to a kind of extreme. So the viewer was sort of almost squashed to the edges. And I think there was a lot of metaphor then because I'm not saying the subject was Brexit. In no way was it the Brexit. But using the British pavilion as a sort of performative space for sculpture, which is still and silent and dumb, it was, it was a really for me, a, a huge challenge to know where the audience fitted into that mm. and to have the work bursting out of it, which I did with these big baubles that were all across the front of the yeah, British pavilion. Were you so, happy with the show? Um, I was difficult to answer because when I left Venice after that opening week, Um, something was perplexing me and I couldn't put my finger... And what it was, just briefly, I won't bore you, was that the German pavilion was just unbelievable where you walked on these glass tables and there were dogs underneath and performed naked bodies. It was just... And the audience... I was looking at the audience and they were just still, silent and mesmerised. And then in the Canadian pavilion, you had these water shoots... This is the 2017 Venice Biennale. Biennale, And then the French Pavilion, it was this sound studio. And I thought, it's so interesting. The audience, in a way, can just wait for the work to come to them. But with my work, you have to, as an audience, you have to activate it. Yes, activate it. And this passive active thing started to really obsessed me mm-hmm. and I was I actually got a kind of revulsion to my Venice 
<laughs> and it was very, very strong. And I just wanted to hone the work down to its bare essentials and in a way that meant rethinking the colour and the application of colour and also examining the idea of the autonomous object, the object that can just stand by itself and perform by itself and then the space for the viewer and the audience to activate it. So the relationship with the space is in a way almost allowing the space to win which I think is what this show is about. Whereas Venice, it was definitely trying to conquer, you know, make the space be devoured by the work. This is so fascinating because you were saying earlier that when you make um, sculptures in the studio, you're you're not thinking about the audience yet or Mm. even about the presentation maybe so much in the sense of an exhibition. But then I read a reviewer wrote about you once that that they saw it almost like you were a marionette, like the, the people were like puppets within, mm. w- w- as an audience member, that you, it was somehow you're really controlling the environment and mm. controlling the experience. How they, how they experienced yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the ma- manipulation was actually a word that got used and I was a bit shocked when I heard that, that, mm. that um, I don't know if it's a podcast or, a, or an article I read, mm. but um, in this exhibition, it's called Cul-de-sac mm. and as you walk through, you have no choice at the end because it, it, mm. it's a dead end yeah. and then you have to walk back. Exactly, um, yeah. So you are very much controlling in a, in a sense yeah. The audience's experience. Or try in a, that's why I call the audience the third protagonist. Right. Because I see them as performers in relationship to the work and the space, you know, and hope that the way they, they use their bodies is exploratory, you know, that they are imagining the height of... I mean, this is the ideal viewer, of course. Right, right, right. I can't guarantee. But I think that probably is... A degree of manipulation, yes. I'm very conscious of how active an audience potentially can be, and that excites me a lot in the sense of being able to give the audience something. Right. Uh, that it's, it's not just standing still, then that's it, you know. There's a... You have to work your way around. Yes. You have to yeah, move, yeah. yeah. And you also have to look in every corner of the yeah. space. I mean, mm. even now, I'm looking through this archway. Mm. That's what I love about this exhibition is the mm. fact you get views into different rooms. Yes. So from this, is, we're now mm. in the middle room of the exhibition. There are three rooms. And if you look up there, you see the dots of colour on the wood, on those planks of wood. <laughs> yes, yes, I hadn't yes. even noticed those when we were in the room oh, because I all noticed, I was looking I at... Did you? Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was looking at the concrete surface <laughs> and thinking about the feeling of that, that material, mm. you know, how it's dried or something. But now I'm looking in there and I see a different thing again Mm. so it is great that Mm. how aware are you of where your work is placed what collector wise oh I have no idea where it is and I'm always sort of dreading the phone call that says uh, um, a bit has fallen off the work what shall we do yes of course because of the way they're made they're not necessarily terrifically stable you know and that's something I'm continuously working on is trying to Stabilise. Yes, yeah, but so then have you the, made many visits to collections to. No, no, I haven't. No, but right. they might come back, and or we, I have to send. Or there's a dreaded envelope is sent with the little pieces. Right. <laughs> How do you feel about that though? The, the the feeling that for the rest of your life you've got to be like having to amend <laughs> yes. broken pieces. Well, slightly panic stricken. Yes. yes, but also yeah, I, I, I felt like you were interested in because in your early work. Um, you were doing a lot of regional exhibitions mm. and you were also teaching for about 40 years. Yes, yeah. And um, 
you, I, one of the part of the story that I kind of loved was this idea that you would make a sculpture, say this one here, this giant mm. sculpture here mm. that we're standing in front of. Um, and then at the end of the exhibition, because it wasn't getting bored, because mm. it was too big, I guess, for most people to even mm. put it in their house or whatever, you would then take that, the, the remnants of that work and then put it into a new work. Oh, and yeah. almost recycle yeah. and keep well, moving it into new all works. All the, um, the uprights, so they're all, all from the Tate show. Oh, really? Yes, and in there as well. Yeah, so it's almost so, like the, it's almost so like the everything's constantly. Some of the work just doesn't exist anymore that we're no. seeing in like documented. Yes, yeah, a lot of the work doesn't exist. In fact, we're we're sort of deciding which of these will be um, stored, recycled, recycled yeah. and then if they are remade again, it you know some of them can be very easily remade again so there's not not much point in keeping right. so you're okay with like so say this one in front of us now well not this one but say this one that's like the three tires and tops yes. and say you took that part and that became other work and someone yeah. came to you and went i want you to recreate the three the cylindrical three tire work would you be reluctant well, I, to do that or? yes i would i think because i i think it would be a real you know repetition well, it would be financially just right. crazy, you know. Um, so maybe this one will be hung on to for a few years and see whether it, it can go somewhere, you know. <laughs> Where would it be hung? If you've got, like, storage, storage is that the uh, well, galleries? Gallery, got very it. kindly. And that's actually the great thing <laughs> of working with Hauser & Werther is they have the budget to really help... Oh, they're Stores. incredible. Yeah. Support yes. what you're yeah. doing and also yeah. protect what yes. you've made and things like that. Yeah. But um, I was really into that idea of when you're recycling, that mm. somehow the energy is moved from one sculpture to well, another. Well, I can show you on the, yeah. the pieces at the end. Yeah. yeah. So we're now mm. moving through I love to the this third one. This is, like, this is like Battlestar Galactica or, or the Star Wars ship. Yes. It makes me <laughs> think of this one. Millennium Falcon, this looks like. Have you seen the photograph of Harry Hill in front of this? No. no. He stands with his... Head framed by the really? black. Shape. He's great. He's so intelligent, Harry Hill. He really loves art. I think he makes art himself and he collects art. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. and he's really, really passionate about it. Oh, right. I think yes. he's great. Yes. Is this polystyrene in this work? That the, the big tower, the big That's polystyrene. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Wow. And what about these sticks mm. here? They're they're plaster, plaster. over timber, and Amazing. that's. Recycled timber, yeah. And you can see each screw as well, can't you? It's yes. Amazing. But I, I think fakery is also very... In, going back to theatricality, I think, you know, making... That's polystyrene, but it's masquerading as... A beam, like a wooden beam. Yes, yeah. So, so it's the trickery of what you assume, I, assumptions. I, I enjoy that, yeah. you know, and interested in it and interested in playing between what are... what. What do we consider to be real and what do we consider to be false? Uh -huh. You know, why is a, a computer screen with something on it sort of hierarchically less real than sitting on the chair opposite the guy with the screen? You know, what, what is our perception of realities, right. especially when it comes to physical stuff like this? You know, and then are there many realities, the fact that the big barrels are look possibly like cement or yeah, a totally. wall of some sort, yeah. but they're not. They're and also the, the weight of it in real life must actually be quite light compared to what you'd think it would be. What it might be, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And in fact, they're really heavy. So there's that the sort of parody in yeah. a way, and I, I find that 
It's, it's like the bronze, you know. The well, that's hollow inside. Yes, yeah. exactly. Big black hollow inside, yeah. and yet it's, it looks so it's strong, seen it? as though it's the, the sort of height of sculptural achievement, yes. you know, which it may well be, but it's not what it sort of aspires to be, which mm. is a big solid object. It's just a, a shell, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. one centimetre thick. So we're now entering the third room of the exhibition, which, again, this is such a great time of day to come because we're here in the morning and the light mm. is incredible Absolutely in this Absolutely wonderful, isn't it? It's yeah. just so slightly eerie, isn't it, in yeah. a way? You're an RA. Yes. When did you become an RA officially? In 2011, yeah. And what did that feel like? Well, uh, a sort of huge honour, you know, but full of mysterious feelings as well. As right. Sort of, I think that childishness of wanting to be sort of a bit rebellious, you know, suddenly it's the establishment, you know, (laughs) you've stepped across the great divide, you know, and it's um, quite a real emotion that, you know, it's it's almost as though you're leaving one tribe behind and joining... The next. The next tribe, yes. But you Um, still feel like you've got your foot in both tribes, I do, yes. Yes. But also, how important is it, though, to have people from you know, different tribes or something. Exactly. And without that connection, Mm. change doesn't happen. So it's really important. When you were made an RA, I actually think it's really significant and Mm. important. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it shouldn't be taken lightly either. No. Because also people can be so snobby about it as well and be like, oh, I don't want to be an RA. Or, or, and you're also a CBE. And some people turn down that honour. But then sometimes it's important to be part Mm. of those things because that's how you change the world in a way. Exactly, yeah. When was you made CBE? Um, Was it two years ago? When that was for services uh, to the arts. Yes, and I made Prince Charles laugh, which Did I think you? is my high spot. How? How? <laughs> I, you go up, and he he has what's called a mutterer, and they are sort of telling him who the people are and what it's for. And he, he said, "I believe you make sculpture," and I said, "Yes, I do." And he said, "What?" kind of sculpture and I said well I'm really sorry but it's the ugly kind and he just <laughs> laughed said, well do you ever make the beautiful kind and I said well I would for you, you know? <laughs> and it was just, just a sort of nice moment amongst this kind of very ceremony yeah. but what was so incredibly moving about that was that I was in a queue with a wonderful woman who was um something called British rowing. And what she was doing was cleaning canals, cleaning waterways, so that people could use the waterways, you know, for all sorts of activities. Mm. And then the guy in front of me, I said what he was, and he says, oh, give me a Harrier jet and I'll take it, to, take it apart and put it back together again. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I don't know, there's something really remarkable about what people do in do their in lives, lives, you know, that it's not just... How you'll you randomly know. come together yes, in that line. Yes, exactly, and I, I love that. I love that kind of sense that, you know, so many different people can There's just There's no meet. order to it, really. Yeah, it makes it, you... absolutely, yeah. It's like those brilliant conversations you can have on a straight train platform and you never meet the person yeah. again. But, yeah. but you give a... so much away yes, <laughs> yes, sometimes. Exactly, yeah. yes. You just described your work uh, as the ugly kind. Do you, do you, you obviously must find beauty in it, but do you really think your work is ugly, parentheses? I think I'm attracted to the kind of 
underbelly of the world around, you know, the things that are not conventionally beautiful and, and trying to maybe bring some beauty to those things. I mean, I find the way those blocks are balanced mm, on those, I just find that immensely... Satisfying. Yes, yeah, yeah me too. exactly. And um, the, the, there's a sort of feeling that they're about to move, you know. Yeah, they are going to slip of, down. Yes, yeah. yeah. So the uh, urban uh, jungle is like your dreamscape, really. Yes, and, and in a way the rural as well, because I think you get these incidents, sort of um, ambiguous incidents in the rural environment. Like suddenly there's a sort of concrete patch in the middle of a field and it's obviously where the tractors park or something. And I, I, I like that collision of human-made activities, yeah. you know, the ploughed field, the concrete patch, the yeah. trimmed hedges or the... Quite the, dystopian sort of yes in in a way it is that yeah. sort of control and where the controls break down yes you it is dystopian yeah. yeah that's a that's a good way of the thing i think i, I love it, about I it as well is that this may not be beautiful in a in a you know a sense that everyone's been taught to believe mm. is beautiful mm. but to me i've always thought it was quite Same. beautiful work and like mm. these sculptures here i i find it all really beautiful yes. and and the way that that drapery there you know, mm. is, is it covered mm. in concrete, that? I'm not yes, sure. yeah. that's, that's scrim. Yeah, oh. Scrim. Oh, that's scrim. scrim. That's Yay. Really... <laughs> but the way that, that drapes, like, I find it incredibly poetic, actually. Look at the balance yeah. of this and, one. Yeah, um, oh, yeah and if we walk, we're going to walk around now. But the other thing I've always loved about your work are the titles of the exhibitions, okay. and then often the titles of the work, which sometimes are quite descriptive in a way. Yes. But the actual titles mm. of the exhibitions, like even this one, Cul-de-sac, mm. they, they, they mean they're quite poetic. They're almost like concrete poetry or something. Or like, oh, that's I'd, interesting. Is literature yeah. a big influence in your Rig, life? Rig was a, one that stuck out for me. That was yes. one, one of your yeah. shows. It's yeah. very uh, human-made. Yes. I like, this one isn't, but I like verbs that are also nouns. So the rig around a ship, say, but also to rig something up. I, and yeah. um, other titles often play with that noun-verb thing. But this was made in situ, or well, these, these, and the... In the space? Yes, Go yeah, on. so we, we had the floor c covered and we were dipping these long um, rolls of scrim into cement and then flicking them onto the, onto the posts. So the top section stood on the ground so we could reach it. And that was, that was great. It, what did it take an hour? You know, really? time is quite important to me. <laughs> well, your team must be on your wavelength completely. You must be like, right, guys, this is what we're doing. Bear with me. And yes. They must be like, okay, we're on it. Yes. Right. Yeah. CBE, RA. No, they don't we're say we're on it. They oh. stay very silent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, are they okay? Are they going to walk <laughs> out on me? me? Yeah. I know they're incredible, and you know, it's a tough call sometimes, like installing this show. And so it's very important to respect that, you know, mm. what they 
what they do. Mm-hmm. I, I came to your house recently in Finsbury Park. Mm. I didn't actually see you that day, no. but I saw your family. Yeah. And um, I noticed in the house there were lots of drawings and notes and, like, it's not just you, it's also your husband, yes. who's a, a great artist and mm. writer as well. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. And there were notes all over the house and mm. different objects, and I kept seeing so much of both of your work throughout <laughs> the house. So how important is drawing to you? Huge, huge. And uh, I have hundreds of sketchbooks that I leave around the house, so there's always one to hand. And then I do these, what I call, coloured drawings. Um, Really, I just try and keep that going because it's a form of contemplation. And I love this way. Sometimes there can be quite a vivid image, but more often there isn't. So it's this, again being in this state where there isn't that thing called an idea, but there may be a very strong sensation which I want to attach to something that is an image, like the idea of throwing the scrim at a structure and seeing how it lands, and then making drawings of that. And uh, gradually this kind of information builds up, which is a real clue to what I want to then do next. Right. So a lot of the drawings would come to fruition into sculpture? Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, um, I draw this at the beginning when I'm not quite sure what it is, and I draw it in the middle of its process and then at the end. So sometimes works have quite a big back archive, if you know wow. what I so mean. So every, every sculpture you could you consider preparatory sketches for it? Not really. everyone, but, right. but many of them do have wow. a whole sort of library. Story. Yeah. Of, yeah. And it's very much part of you working out your thought processes. And yes, the yes, of, yes, exactly. I mean, in a way, it's incredibly traditional. You know, there are small models, there are drawings, then there are the big ones, or there are just the small ones, which I'm only just now beginning to make drawings about, which I'm really enjoying because there's a kind of, a sort of echo, if you know what I mean, that gets down onto the paper and it's the colour and everything can be very free. Right. Mm. Another thing, you, you described us as being generous earlier, but I've mm. always, every time I've met you, I've always felt you have a huge amount of kind of empathy and uh, generosity in, in your spirit. Mm. And I wonder if that's also because you spent so long teaching other people. And all the people that I, a lot of young artists I know were taught by you, mm. and they all sing your praises and, and, oh, really? and, also, and also talk about how much you challenged them and mm. actually made them think differently about oh. what they were doing. Mm. And you were quite provoking in a way. I think you, it wasn't like just a passive you know, Mm. uh, relationship somehow. You were very much pushing people Mm. and making them think more about how they made their work. Mm. And it's it's last, lasted that that impact. So what was teaching like for you? And how important is that whole legacy to you? I think the working with young artists is an enormous privilege. And I just, I don't mean that sycophantically. I just think as an older artist to be in touch with younger artists who are experiencing things you know, I mean, take the whole computer age, you know, they would have grown up with computers, unlike my generation, which had to sort of scrabble to (laughs) get some knowledge of this, you know, and they've grown up with things. So that these different timescales that, you know, a teacher of my age, I don't 
teach anymore but would have had the experience of is hugely stimulating and enriching. And then bringing to that maybe the need to inspire confidence and to really inspire somebody's imagination, you know, and all the things that are lurking in that imagination that, that maybe not yet the courage to act upon and trying to get that. They go for it, you know, forget about being right or wrong or good or bad, you know. Go for what you are thinking about, mm. you know. Respect your thoughts, you know. Don't, don't worry about art, that will look after itself. You know? right. but, but you are more important in terms of what's going on in your head. You I know. think something I found really inspiring as well about what, you've, what I've read about you in interviews was when you say that, um, because obviously you weren't necessarily um, being totally accepted by the art world until a lot later, in a yes. way, like being collected and all of that stuff, having big museum <laughs> shows around the world like you do now. For a long time, I mean, 40 years or something, you were not, not, I don't think you were ignored, but I think you just weren't in, in the commercial art mm. world in that sense. Mm. But you were saying that it doesn't matter because in making, you know, it doesn't matter what, what the mm. end result is, you just need to make. Yes. And yeah. I love that idea yeah. that the end mm. result even doesn't matter mm. or the reception of it doesn't matter. No. But yeah. should it mean that if a book doesn't get published, you shouldn't write that book? Or? That's my example, yeah. you know, and if we apply that kind of fascism, we're we're destroying ourselves. So exactly. I suppose during the teaching years, you know, maybe I was a bit of a stuck record, you know, which was, you know, don't just aim for fame and a gallery because it may not happen. And, you know, disappointment is something we've all got to learn to weather and in a way overcome. And it, that's a huge thing to have to tackle in oneself so it's much more important to establish how you want to place your internal world into the outside you know and be incredibly proud and confident about those processes that help you do that than always gnawing away at an idea of what success is you know um, of course success is important but it's also a kind of disease in some way, you know, that you have a very fixed idea of what success is rather than actually just making a piece of work can be right. a way you gauge your own success. You know. Amazing. Well, we ask every guest who comes on two very challenging questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, you could steal a work of art, like a touchstone artwork for you anywhere in the world, mm -hmm take it home and live with it, what would that be? And just before you answer, you don't have to have, um, it, you don't have to be able to put it in your pocket. You can literally, we will bring trucks. Will you? And we yes. will help you. We'll, we'll bring you a crane, <laughs> anything you want to yeah, help you. Scrim, just bags just like back to scrim to, to rack it up and get it work. out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Velasquez. Ooh. Las Meninas. Oh, oh really? Yes. That's in the Prado, isn't it? Yes, yes. 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 Be difficult. How shall we do it? That's what I'm saying, just cover it with scrim. I've got connections, I've got connections in Madrid. Oh, there we so, go. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's all right. Can we go through the ceiling and pick it up? Definitely. Let's go through the floor. Let's be non-conformist. Let's burrow down. <laughs> just, like in, um, just like in Mission Impossible, we could have, like, Tom Cruise Thomas Brown affair. Oh, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Very dramatic. That's yours. Yeah. It's coming your way. Thank so you. I'm that. really grateful. And I just want to walk over to this side of the room. We're going to go right to the end of the exhibition now, and we're going to go under the... 
the giant <laughs> blocks of what looked like polystyrene about to... A lovely... Um, I came in here and there was a whole group of children and one of them... So I, the, the education person was there and she said, would I talk to them? So I did. It was just a, and I said, have you got any questions? And one little girl said, yeah. You know you're very old. How did you live those... <laughs> <laughs> I just love children. I just think they get to the heart of yeah, things yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely straight away. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah, no editing there. No editing, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Which is so tough. Everyone goes, so, so, many, so many people get really Well, the, the colour I love using the most is, is around you, pink. But um, I think I like street colours, you know, yellows, reds, sort of narcissist, narcissistic colours that are very visible and... and, and uh, Why would it be narcissistic? Because it's overpowering because and... and a, attention-seeking, you mm. know, like notices, like warning signs or colours that, you know, are you meant to be... You can't ignore. In, yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's very interesting in airports, which are my... I go instantly dyslexic and autistic and everything. I can't. But the notice is all yellow. And I, I always wonder, is that really the wisest colour to have in, in an airport? You know, I can't... I'm standing underneath departures and I have to ask somebody and say, where, where, where is the departures? And the yeah. look of sort of... Oh God, we've got one of these in the airport. You know, <laughs> it's it your first it's time? right there, madam. You know, <laughs> what colour would you use then? I don't know, but I often wonder whether it, they shouldn't be pink. Actually, yes. you know, yeah. <laughs> well, that would make you very happy. Yes, very. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been the most incredible experience, Phyllis. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's mm. such an incredible show. Everyone, please come and see it. It's How on, much longer is it on for? It's on to the end of June, I think. Mm. Oh, fantastic! Mm. At the Royal Academy mm. in Piccadilly. Yeah, mm. it's on to the twenty-third of June. And um, it's right in the centre of London. If you live outside of London, I really recommend travelling up to London and seeing mm -hmm. this show. Same. Or even flying over here, because I yes. know we have a lot of people <laughs> listening all over the world now. Um, and look, this is such a beautiful way to end the exhibition, because look, just looking through those rooms, um, through the archways, you can see your favourite colour, pink. And we've got to walk back through, because it's a cul-de-sac. <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> so, that's exciting. Yeah. If you uh, want to see any of the images of today's podcast, please go onto the At Talk Art app, or not app, on Instagram, on Instagram. Feed, yeah, and you'll be able to see all of those. And uh, and you can see more of Philida's work at her gallery's website, houserandworth.com. Yes, have you got a website yourself? No, I haven't, actually. Are you no. on Instagram? Uh, no, no, sorry. You're a tweeter? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. <laughs> She's way too busy. You're not like, realising this room is full of so much work. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Thank and you, Philida. It's been amazing to spend time with you. so much. Lots of love. Wonderful. And wonderful. And yeah. um, we'll be back soon, guys. All right, bye. 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 <laughs> You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Recorded at Spiritland London by Anthony Shaw and edited by Gareth Isles. Subscribe to Talk Art on iTunes and Spotify. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com